If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. This is Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Because this podcast is primarily listener-backed, and we hope to keep it ad-free, we do need your direct support today in order to continue the show. Join us starting at just $2 a month, like treating us to a cup of coffee or tea, or make a one-time contribution at greendreamer.com support. We are witnessing the real-time unfolding of the colonization of space. In the past, because the world wasn't so connected throughout, we missed historical events that were unfolding in a global way with broad worldwide consequences. But now we really are seeing this slow motion, in a way, yet happening too quickly, we are actually seeing what could be a preventable disaster. Today we're speaking with Dr. Aparna Ventakesan, a cosmologist working on studies of first light sources in the universe. She also works actively in cultural astronomy and space policy. She's recognized internationally for her research and diversity, equity, and inclusion leadership, featured widely in the media, and has received numerous prizes and awards. She's deeply committed to increasing the participation and retention of underrepresented groups in astronomy and the sciences, and is active in developing co-created scientific partnerships with indigenous communities worldwide. Dr. Ventakesan has worked with numerous undergraduate students in her research. 90% have been women and or minorities, and about half of them have gone into STEM careers. In the last few years, Dr. Ventakesan has been leading work towards preserving space as a scientific, environmental, and cultural resource for humanity, given the growing privatization of space and the rising impacts of satellite constellation in low Earth orbits. I grew up mostly all over India and Southeast Asia, and early on, I developed a very deep love of mathematics. I think most of us would agree that language can be a complicated medium of communication, 
And in fact, language is often loaded, and it's an incomplete reflection of what people are actually wanting to convey or are might actually be thinking. So some of my earliest inspirations came from this love of mathematics. I really see it as a fundamental language for the cosmos. And I also see it as a very simple and pure way of communication, something that's not subject to a lot of misunderstanding or misinterpretation, but I see it as very fundamental yet subtle and beautiful. So that's my own love of mathematics. And I also love the stars. And so I loved thinking about and exploring for myself what a career looking at math in the universe might look like. And I do feel very fortunate that I'm getting to live the dream of that, studying the stars for a profession. As I've grown older, I've begun to invite my integrative self to this endeavor. We talk a lot about science versus culture, but I think we don't think enough about the culture of science. So my own upbringing in Asian culture and my own cultural sky traditions and beliefs have become a very rich part of my inner landscape that I bring to my scientific lens. And as you know, I also work a lot with indigenous communities worldwide and particularly in the Americas for over two decades, and learning about other cultures, sky traditions, and their seamless integration with science, art, culture, that has also been an ongoing inspiration for me. Wow, there's so much in what you just said that I'm very curious to dive deeper into. We haven't really gotten to talk about the subject of satellites on this show before, but especially as people's expanding cable networks, communication, navigation systems, and more become increasingly reliant on these technologies, it just feels like a really critical awareness to really bring to the forefront, especially because they're often invisibilized and occupying spaces that do not displace or pollute communities as directly in the same ways that other land-dependent industrial-scale projects would. So to provide a more of a big picture backdrop first, I'm curious how you would introduce the connections and relationships you see between our satellite constellations and our histories of colonization, militarism, and the expansion of empires. I'm sure, of course, we could spend hours on this alone, but what are some key points that people should know as starting points? Thank you. So a little bit of background Satellites in orbits around Earth have been around for decades, but the current expansion is relatively new. Historically, for 50 to 60 years, we've had a few hundred satellites or so. And in fact, some of the earliest constellations had just a, a few dozen or so and managed to do fairly well on those. But as our digital needs and our communication needs have grown, people began to think about expanding the presence of satellite networks in space because ground-based internet can sometimes run into issues with terrain or delivering the same even quality. So having satellite 
bandwidth, digital bandwidths delivered through satellites became of greater interest. So I would say 2019 is really the first year that satellites really burst onto the public awareness, that first link of 60 Starlink satellites from SpaceX that went across the sky in almost like a flotilla of lights. It was May 24th, 2019, I remember it because it's my younger son's birthday that day. And I think the whole world woke up to what was that? And it's been brewing that the situation would be happening for some time, I would say a decade. There's been planning out to this. But the scale at which it's unfolding and the pace are what has been, in my mind, some of the greatest challenges. So there's a lot to parse here, but a summary would be that right now we are up to a few thousand satellites in low Earth orbitals, or LEO. Why do we put them there? Because the communication time round trip with them is shorter, so it allows us to have a latency in the signal that promotes higher bandwidth in the internet, faster communication. We don't have to wait for it to go all the way up to a higher satellite. There's different trade-offs between satellites in high elevations versus low, but let me not get sidetracked by that. Let me just say that people knew that there would be some issues even going into this. For example, satellites glint and reflect light unpredictably, so people knew this might become an issue for an astronomers. But the scale of what's unfolding already has become very alarming, not just for astronomers, for a broader swath of constituencies. So we can delve more into that, but I would say some of the most alarming parts are that we are at just a few percent of what's been approved for launch in the next five to 10 years. So close to half a million satellites have been approved for launch. Now, even if we say only a fraction of those already approved will actually launch, that's still a factor of a few tens to a few hundreds more than we've ever had up there. And even at the low level that we have up there, the orbits are getting congested. There's a lot of interference with radio signals. There's a lot of interference with astronomical observations. And a number of times collisions have only been narrowly avoided. So each collision creates debris, which lingers for decades, if not centuries. There's a lot of side worries coming from the debris. So there's real concerns for astronomers. We're seeing lots of streaks already in our data from satellite reflections in long exposures, but there's environmental degradation and debris concerns. And of course, if we have skies that are getting brighter from satellites, it really impacts cultural sky traditions and Entire ecological systems reliant on dark skies, like migration of animals and birds or circadian rhythms. But I, I want to end on a note of hope for this question. From my perspective, yes, we are, and speaking for myself, we are witnessing the real-time unfolding of the colonization of space. In the past, because the world wasn't so connected throughout, we 
missed historical events that were unfolding in a global way with broad worldwide consequences. But now we really are seeing this slow motion in a way, yet happening too quickly. We are actually seeing what could be a preventable disaster. We're seeing it unfold. And in my mind, we're also seeing real-time colonization unfold in an entirely new environment space. So we're kind of taking the legacy of Earth colonization up to a cosmic scale. But it's still early days yet, and I think we can protect this shared environment. And also what I see as the intangible heritage of humanity. Space belongs to us all. And in a way, so much of the privatization and militarization of other arenas has unfolded in many similar ways, taking something that belongs to everyone and then funneling it with a lot of publicly paid for tax subsidies or programs, but funneling it back into corporate profits and private or military agendas. But again, it's early days yet. And I have personally been surprised in my work by how much awareness and collaborative potential there is with the military in this case. They too are worried about crowded orbits and debris. So I will pause there for now. <laughs> that was wow. a lot, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it certainly feels concerning for me as well that the number of satellites currently in space, which has already caused a detrimental impact for various communities are just a small fraction of what's been approved. And this subject, I just don't think is even on the radar of a lot of people, like who got to approve all of these satellites and who provided the consent and who that's left out and all of these things. But yeah, you're right that this is something that's currently taking place. So hopefully with greater awareness, people can organize more passionately around this. So we ensure interplanetary justice for all. And on satellites as well, something that I've been thinking about is that there's no universalized vision of justice. And oftentimes, if they are narrower in their scope of considerations, they can actually be conflicting. And I think satellites illustrates this quite well. So in addition to space litter, as you shared, the expanding satellite constellation is contributing significantly to sky glow and, you know, just worsening light pollution in a lot of very illuminated places, which makes it more difficult for communities to to engage with their night skies and sky traditions and also making it more difficult for astronomers to study space. And I see a nuance here as in a lot of more rural and underserved communities want to have access to the internet, to extended communication networks in order to engage in global discourses, politics, and change. And especially for those in conflict and war zones, sometimes the ability for people to communicate with their loved ones can be really critical for survival and community care. Of course, some other rural communities have no interest in being integrated into the globalized network and economy in this way, and people have to respect that as well. But regardless, addressing the injustice in digital and network accessibility for the increasing number of communities that want in does mean more satellites and all of the other infrastructures associated with them. But their expansion also means more light and space pollution, which a lot of people want less of. So I'm curious how you would address these conflicting visions of justice and liberation. And I don't know, maybe the number of satellites serving rural and underserved communities pay 
details in comparison to ones used for other purposes, so it could be relatively negligible. But what do we know about all of this? I think these are excellent points, and I appreciate your bringing them up. And I think one of the ways that we get divided and eroded is being forced into siloed or binary thinking by systemic factors. So let me explain what I mean by that. So for example, it's very important for astronomers to be vocal about the incredible inequities with access to resources and particularly the digital divide. So this whole explosion of satellites in space unfolded during the pandemic years when, you know, the whole world shut down. There's one thing that didn't slow down, which was satellite launches. And when the whole world slowed down and shut down, really, I think all of us will take away our lessons from the pandemic years. And for me personally, I learned a lot about just the world and how it works and how fragile systems are, but how there was no limit to human collaboration and ingenuity if we just put our shoulder to the wheel together. So the digital divide, which was very real before the pandemic, became a digital chasm, right? I teach university, and it is very clear to me when I receive freshmen who had a high school education that had reasonable digital resources and bandwidth access versus who didn't, right? It's become a very real divide that is lingering now into people's years after the pandemic. So it's very important for astronomers to advocate for affordable broadband globally because it's not just about our future STEM workforce It's simply about justice for the world and access to what is essentially now a non-negotiable utility, right? It's also become a basic right in education for medicine and medical access. So, So what we need to assess, and this is what's been so complicated, there's no centralized regulatory authority that oversees approval. Who approves all these satellites? Well, there's one branch of federal government who does that. But then who manages the the space traffic and who deals with situational awareness in LEO, low Earth orbits? We need to centralize all that. Right now, there's a lot of different offices that may not always be in contact with each other. But we need to centralize it because the goal is important, globally affordable broadband. And the rhetoric is very lofty. You know, we want to democratize space. We want to bring all these wonderful things for all of humanity. But we have to see how that actually shakes out. When you look at the owners of some of these companies and you look at some of their other companies, they don't convey a sense of a very just or democratic workplace environment. In fact, it's quite the contrary. So we have to see if this model 
of we're going to bring economic development for all and the broadband's going to be cheap actually works because what we don't want is to be left with a sky full of orbiting hardware forever. And that stuff's going to spiral down and crash down. And we shouldn't have the situation where the companies walk away, leaving us with a mess to clean up. But I think it's very important for communities to have broadband. The question is, is this the only way? Can we do some environmental assessments before we put quite so much? And then who will clean up the mess? I mean, these are all needing clarification. There's some language for it in the Outer Space Treaty, but we are kind of a new terrain because the legal gray area is actually being taken advantage of, in my opinion, in the name of this lofty public good goals. But it is a very big legal gray area. For example, do you know that space is not yet declared an environment or a human environment? Mm -hmm. It's seen as a separate entity And wherever Earth's jurisdiction ends, I mean, people argue about how many miles that is above the Earth's surface, that's the extent of Earth's laws. But coming back to my original point, nothing's ever binary, nothing's ever siloed. It's all a spectrum. It's an integrative continuum. And we're living in that integrative continuum as human beings, but also Earth to space. Yeah, we certainly learned a lot about entanglement in terms of humans and the more than human world. And I think this really speaks to our entanglement with the more than earth world that we have to really honor and take into account as well. And I want to speak to some of the underlying worldviews. So in your piece titled, We Have Always Been In and Of Space, you talk about these different perceptions of time, juxtaposing cyclical views of time, which most cultures and indigenous communities have had over the millennia, from more linear views of time as held by dominant Western worldviews. How would you expand on how these differing perceptions of time impact how people then relate to or attempt to control and manage time? And critically here, how has this led to different approaches and mindsets to space exploration and understanding? That's a great question and also a topic really worthy of a deep dive by regulatory Mm -hmm. agencies. I'm not sure they'll do it. So In that piece written for the Center for Humans and Nature, I'd quoted the wonderful Maori scholar Linda Tuhiwai-Smith. She talks about the manufactured urgency of colonial systems. And I want to quote that again here because, let's face it, We've all been around for 14 billion years, so what's the rush to get there this year? Why can't we move forward after consulting all constituencies in space, which is not just all of humanity, but a lot of ecological systems dependent on dark skies and space? Why can't we move forward after thinking things through, consulting different human constituencies, doing some test runs with low levels of satellites, seeing what goes well, what doesn't go well, and then keep on adjusting the path. But that's not what's happening. We are being told that we have to get there first. And it's really a vision that's rooted 
in conquest and claims rather than communities and consensus. And the view of time, from my perspective, is at the root. There's a kind of deep panic about getting there first to claim a lot of their resources there, right? A lot of countries are rushing to get to the moon. We know that there'll be a bunch of bases very likely in the next decade or two from different space actors and nations. But everyone's also rushing to get to the South Pole of the moon, which is where frozen water ice is, because that's going to be a great resource for whoever gets there to continue to expand out in the solar system. I'm personally pretty offended how some space actors don't even pull back from colonization rhetoric. They literally say, let's go colonize. And they use the colonization rhetoric. They wear, you know, cowboy hats to the launch pads. Cowboy hats by themselves are not offensive. I personally like them, but it's along with the rhetoric of that. It's it's just conveying this language, the mindset of frontier, and then all the mythology that goes with the frontier, right? Like you're riding out into a desolate landscape where nothing else is. And if something or someone happens to be there, it displays them and we'll just claim it. So there's a lot of kind of myth-making and storytelling that is really very rooted in a colonial frontier mindset, in my opinion. So again, it's this linear view of time where everything goes through, you know, you get one chance at everything. There's a beginning, a middle, and the end, and everyone's rushing to get to the end first so that you're not the last to arrive rather than seeing each day and each year and each age as a chance to learn like we do on a spiral staircase where maybe not at the same place as we get to higher floors, but we can look down, see where we've been and say, what can I learn? So I do think that that anxiety and the frontier mindset are very closely intertwined with this view of time and how we're approaching space, but really in how colonization has unfolded on Earth. Yeah, I was going to say this definitely goes beyond space as well, because perhaps the underlying worldviews of time is also related to certain cultures' mindsets of scarcity and values of short-term extraction and individual gain over longer-term collective nurturing and thriving. And it does feel like right now the most dominant and funded forms of astronomy and space exploration are driven by particular interests, worldviews, goals, and intentions, which aren't reflective of our immense diversity of communities and cultures that take different but active interests in growing our intimacies with our skies, with our dark skies, and with space. But what have you noted as being limiting or troubling from the industry and field of space exploration as it stands today? And what possibilities could come about from more integrative approaches that honor the diversity of scientific, spiritual, cultural, and ethical knowledges of different peoples? I think we are going to start hearing a lot more about the ethical aspects of space exploration in the coming years. 
It's very, very hard. Even when there are motivated individuals and systems, I find systemic factors have such momentum. Systems are created to serve a particular fraction of humanity, and their goals are very clear. And systems can be very implacable in delivering their predetermined outcomes for a few, because that is what they are designed for. So even if we have very motivated individuals in those systems, the systems just have a lot of momentum. So I would say for astronomers, many of us have benefited from land-grant universities and the legacies of colonization, but there's a growing number of astronomers and STEM professionals who are cognizant of this, who are trying to make change in the system, and we're also actively working with local indigenous communities, particularly if they work at an observatory that happens to be near a tribal nation or, well, all of the land really is traditionally indigenous land. But examples are Kitt Peak National Observatory and the Tohono O'odham Nation. Recent uh, headlines, everyone saw the headlines on the 30-meter telescope and Mauna Kea, but recently, there's been a lot of progress with that in the sense that after eight years of stalemate, there's now a new Mauna Kea Stewardship Oversight Authority that's moving away from individual constituencies. Oh, the astronomers, the storytellers, the Hawaiian community organizers. It's moving away to the stewardship of Mauna Kea itself as the shared environment for all initiatives. So I personally am closely watching how that plays out and I feel very hopeful knowing the amazing, heartful people who are involved, but it's going to be a journey because building an ethical, relational approach to a shared environment that has tremendous potential is slow, messy work. But I don't see any other way forward because the opposite of that is what you said. It's rushed, it's extractive, and ultimately very destructive. I mean, destructive to the communities, destructive to the environment. So I think we could apply a lot of that to space, but I would say the leading problems that I see from the industry are how very quickly things are happening. They move fast, they're nimble, they're accountable to their shareholders, and to maintain their licensing to launch, they must keep launching every month and every year a certain number of satellites. Otherwise, the conditions of licensing are impacted. So the pace at which this is unfolding, I would say, is the greatest challenge and one last point here, the reason they're able to keep up this pace and launch with such, you know, at such a furious pace is because they have not been brought under the purview of a lot of earth laws, including NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, because space is not yet considered an environment. So we need to make more attach more conditions to licensing, not because we feel like it, but because there is genuine and justified concern for what might happen to this pristine environment of orbital space if we get there 
at unsustainably high levels and do too much. We don't want to degrade or ruin that environment. It's our only way out off and back to earth. So we don't want to leave a permanently rotating cage of debris that we can never pass through, you know? Wow. Yeah. That these companies have to launch every single month in order to keep their license is quite mind-boggling. And it incentivizes kind of this rushed approach that you mentioned. And for some reason, perhaps due to the impacts of skewed narratives and storytelling, I feel like the topic of space and space exploration is often associated with futurism and what's considered futuristic. And yet this association kind of leaves out how our skies actually reflect ancient history. For example, as you write beautifully, as we analyze the ancient light of distant systems, we know that our own songs and electromagnetic transmissions are leaving Earth on interstellar voyages to other worlds. Space is therefore our ancestral home in a physical and metaphysical sense, end quote. To these points, I would be curious to hear you speak more to the heritage of our dark skies, what it could mean to look at space as our ancestral global commons, and also if it feels relevant here, what dark sky nations refers to. Yeah, Thank you very much for your kind words and also for the very thoughtful questions. So let me start with heritage. Five, 10, 30 years ago, heritage had particular meaning for different communities. For space, it tended to be defined as maybe specific landing sites on distant world or, you know, astronaut boot prints on the moon, or it, it was very narrow, the definition of heritage on worlds other than Earth. And on Earth, there were definitions through the UN for intangible cultural heritage or UNESCO sites, so specific structures and so on. But now, after the last three years, from my perspective, we have lost a lot of elders to the pandemic. And I teach young people and I see, hear, and sense their hunger for traditions, for ancestors, for heritage. I see it every week. And we've lost a lot of elders to the pandemic. But climate change, too, is steadily erasing Earth heritage, whether through redwoods burning down, those are more elders burning down, whether it's heritage sites getting flooded or impacted by climate change, rising ocean levels. And I would take it even farther. When you have entire communities whose languages and way of life are tied to environment and are tied to the place, you know, the place in which their traditions are grounded, the skies in which their traditions are grounded, then the definition of heritage is calling to be expanded given the crossroads we're at, you know, the late pandemic stage, climate change is fully in our face now. It's not a distant threat on the horizon. It's fully in our face. So what do we define as heritage? Do we define it just as these narrow specific instances or the very environment in which this rich human relationship to the broader tapestry of how we understand and relate to our world and cosmos first arose. So is that through our language? Is it through our sky tradition? 
our art, our storytelling, or all of it. So in my mind, as Earth faces increasing crises, the skies for me are a last stand of heritage. I've begun to think of dark skies as an inalienable human right, something that is ours and should not be taken away, particularly by corporate interests, in the name of our common good and in the name of economic development for all of us, which we have to see if that actually happens. But it's interesting to have this interview when the entire banking system is wobbling this week and when cryptocurrency has been in free fall for the last six months. Because wasn't this some of the language of cryptocurrency that it would allow the average investor to have material gain and economic growth. You know, it invited amateur and citizen stakeholders. And there was a lot of narratives, a lot of storytelling around, you know, come get yours, come get your piece of the economic pie. But it was not managed well, and it entered free fall like some banks are. So like in all these situations, Citizen stakeholders are left in bankruptcy while the industry is rescued over and over. So I do think it's something to keep in mind, again, folding it back to the colonization of space as a frontier. I see this as a modern day call to manifest destiny with all of the challenges, even the ugliness and wounding that that brought. So for me, the way to move forward and keeping in mind that people are exhausted, right? People are in major crisis fatigue. They're sick of bad news. They, We don't want to present space and orbital space as yet another front of things are bad, bad, and they're going to get worse. And here's all the awful things that'll happen. I think it's early days yet. And I think we need to rise up collectively and claim back what has always been ours, our heritage, the dark skies, and claim it not just for ourselves, but for all the systems reliant on that and that we are affecting, you know, pretty much day to day at this point. So it's not just about us anymore, but this whole web of life and just inanimate environments here on Earth, because we don't want to export this to the moon and Mars, right? Like just to kind of treat it as there for the taking. Mm. When you offer this invitation to look at space as our ancestral global commons, I also think about the possibilities of creating commons for our networks of communication. And, you know, just thinking about the crazy number of satellites that will be launched in the next five to 10 years. I wonder if it is partly the privatization of the companies launching these satellites, which lead to them to compete with one another that drives that immense growth, which may not be necessary if the goal were to enable more communities to have broadband connection access. So I guess my question is whether this exponential growth in the number of satellites is actually necessary in order to connect the whole world, or is that just a reflection? of privatized and competing corporate interests? I think there's a way to bring this all together. You know, it's... I genuinely think 
that not all space companies are in this just for pure profit and rhetoric. They do want to leave a legacy and they do want to do good. And I also want to say, if we could just appreciate all the different strands of our human endeavors and bring together the strengths, for example, can we bring together the very real capital and the incredible adaptability and nimbleness of private space companies? Could we bring that together with the broader charge of federal agencies who are accountable to the people? Could we bring it all together, um, right? Like, so, you know, some private space companies are already claiming indigenous communities saying, but look at this tribe, they're happy with us. And astronomers are also like, but indigenous communities don't want this. But I, I don't think anybody should be claiming each other. I think we should all bring our strengths together in a way that's mutually beneficial. But to do that, we really need to find a way to slow things down so we can develop relationships. It's going to be hard to find solutions that work for all. And everyone's goals are going to be very different with you know, the, our moving out into space, it's going to be very different. But can we find a way, even if our goals are different, perhaps even, you know, contradictory with each other or completely the opposite from each other's goals, can we find a way to share this environment and to build off each other's strengths? Because let's face it, when you're out there on the moon, and if something goes wrong, you're going to need all the help you can get, right? We're not going to be so worried right then about geopolitics or who said what back on earth. This really is a shared endeavor and our shared ancestor, right? Space really is our our shared ancestor. Hmm. When people talk about protecting our lands, protecting our waterways, protecting our planet, understandably so, most of them are mostly just referring to our Earth and our planetary health. And what I love about this conversation and your work is that it invites us to see our orbital spaces and our skies also as deserving of love and care and justice. So again, it goes beyond the more than human world to the more than Earth world. And it can't just be out of sight, out of mind with the increasing number of space debris and space junk that are littering our skies with little oversight over them. And at the same time, though, all of this can feel distant and out of reach for a lot of people. So I wonder if you can speak more to what interplanetary justice and respectful stewardship for our orbital spaces could look like. And what could it even mean to build or enhance communities rather than colonies in space? Yeah, I speak a lot on communities rather than colonies in space. And I love the term interplanetary justice. And I would say that I myself have learned a lot in the last few years about environmental justice and light justice on Earth and how they affect the same communities negatively as are impacted by colonization, climate change, and the pandemic. So it's the same few percent of humanity impacted over and over, living in, you know, having excessive light pollution from urban lights and ground-based light pollution is already a huge issue as a recent 
citizen science data-based paper, a groundbreaking paper, recently revealed that since 2011, there's been a 10% increase in light pollution from the ground year to year. So that's huge. Over a child's lifetime from being born from age zero to 18, by the time they get to 18, they're going to see a few times fewer stars. So that's huge. So now we're moving this problem out to space. So what does light justice in space look like? And the problem with space is, and you're right, that not very many people know this is unfolding yet. Just like when there were all these other historical patterns and events, whether it was corporate greed in the banking system or the unfolding of colonization, people were not aware that injustices were building and that things that would enormously impact their life were unfolding until it was often too late. But in the case of this orbital space situation, I do think people are already seeing streaks. They're already seeing satellites. We are already seeing debris fall back in an uncontrolled way, not regularly, but every now and then in enough of an unpredictable way that it's already concerning. And then, of course, there's going to be some environmental degradation that happens, which will also become unavoidable. So how do we maintain interplanetary justice? I think by really looking at all our strands of human strength and wisdom, inviting all ways of knowing. What can we learn from the broader Oceania diaspora of wayfinders, their profound non-instrument scientific celestial navigation? What can we learn from them about living together in close quarters while being mariners out in the open ocean for weeks and weeks on end? How can we apply that to NASA missions? Because it takes a few months to get to Mars. We have to figure out how we're all going to live together, bringing very different worldviews in. Uh, What can we learn from different global cultural traditions about the ways we approach new spaces? Do we pay respects to it? Do we not assume that it's just empty and there for the taking? Do we leave open the possibility for surprises? Do we view time as a reset every day, a chance to learn and move forward, but not to carry anxiety and baggage? So I think When we expand our realm of justice, it's important to move forward in celebration and honoring our strengths, I believe, because the peculiar crossroads we're at is one of exhaustion and fatigue where many injustices and inequities deepened over the pandemic. People are tired. So phrasing this as a story, that's still unfolding, that all human ways of knowing are invited to. And again, honoring honoring the different system strengths, right? Having a wise integrative approach that's unassimilated and unique, where we build a vision of a future because the reality is we are going to space, but how can we do it in a way 
that's not messy and short-lived? Can we have a vision of our future in space that arises from the beating heart of what makes us human, where we use corporations and capital and technology layered in as the tools and the delivery mechanisms, but not the driving principles. We can't go to some entities for the grounding principles, the sort of opening vision of, you know, what is driving this ethically, but we can use the technology, the tools, the scientific knowledge. And in a way, I feel cultural traditions, millennia-old indigenous knowledge can be that grandmotherly wisdom that guides the curious, nimble, youthful energy of capitalism-driven exploration. Any gardener knows you need to plant the, you know, short-lived plants and crops with the longer-lived plants and crops that, re, you know, renew the soil. And that's how I feel. Like, again, the grandmotherly wisdom of millennia-old human knowledge, including indigenous knowledge, but that can guide and be patient with this very energetic, nimble, curious energy of capitalism and space exploration. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? I recently reread Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, Dr. Kimmerer, is an indigenous ecologist. It's a profoundly beautiful book. It's been out for a decade. It just won the MacArthur Award last October. But even though it was written a decade ago, it seems more relevant than ever. And I took away something from every chapter for our future in orbital space. Mm. What has been a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Just to breathe and reconnect to awe and mystery and wonder because that is the space from which we can move forward creatively and playfully. Anxiety is not that space. So mm-hmm. to breathe and to marvel. Mm. I just took a deep breath there. And as we're wrapping up, what is one of your biggest sources of inspiration at the moment? I would say my students It is such an honor to be with the future every day and also the skies. I get a visceral thrill 
from watching celestial cycles unfold, whether it's little occultations or transits or, you know, a a week ago, or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, Jupiter and Venus came to their closest approach in a long time. The moon in January was at its closest approach in, I think, 992 years. Uh, And the tides where I live by the beach in San Francisco were crazy. Like the low tides were low and the high tides were Mm -hmm. high. And um, I just get this very awe, you know, I don't know what the right word is. I get a mystical thrill from the cycles of the cosmos. Mm, beautiful. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but we will have more articles from Aparna and other references from this episode shared in our show notes at greendreamer.com. And Aparna, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you. And for now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say, let us move forward in hope and collaboration. We've got this. And let's uh, be the elders that the future deserves. If you feel inspired by these conversations and wish to see our podcast continue, Please join us today on Patreon starting at just $2 a month at greendreamer.com support. We really do need and so appreciate your direct support in order to be able to continue our ad-free show. You can also really help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing out your favorite episodes with your loved ones. Green Dreamer is grateful for the support of our past and present listeners and readers and for our partnership with Kaliapea Foundation. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Sima Holly. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>